And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Welcome to the Audible presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Stuart Mandel. Joined as always by Bruce Feldman. Bruce, we've had a couple pretty, not even a couple, quite a few very heavy episodes recently. And so for today, We're going to lighten the mood a little bit, and we are opening it to you guys, the listeners, and this episode is going to be entirely your football questions. All right, Stu. Uh, So let's get to the mailbag. As always, you can send your questions to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. Our first question is from Mark in Pittsburgh. Uh, it's a fun one in that I think, Stu, it gives you a good setup for what we hope will be the college football season and stuff to get excited about, which normally these kinds of things we've probably been kicking around and discussing for already months at a time. And we really haven't. So here's Mark's question. There are a lot of great non-conference matchups this year. Which non-conference game do you think will be the most intriguing, i.e. new coach, new system, new quarterback, other storylines, etc.? And which one do you think will be the most significant for determining the playoff and setting up the season to come? Okay, so Mark has a list of references, and he used the rankings courtesy of Stu, your postseason post-spring top 25 uh mark did a lot of the heavy lifting here and all but one of his suggestions or i should say um there was only one game out of his suggestions that stood out to me um i'm gonna rattle off a couple of the ones that i highlighted from mark's list you tell me which you find the most intriguing and which you will think will be the most significant and then i will follow up off of yours uh the first one he lists Number two, Alabama against what would be number 12, according to the Stu rankings, USC. Michigan, number 22, against an unranked Washington team. Number 13, Auburn against number 16, North Carolina. Number 23, Tennessee at number 6, Oklahoma. Number 14, Texas at number 8, LSU. Number 3, Ohio State at number 5, Oregon. Number 10, Notre Dame at number 11, Wisconsin. Uh, I have a wild card I'm going to throw in there just as as one other that caught my attention. It's a little bit of a wild game. But uh, it is perennial FCS powerhouse North Dakota State opening the season at Oregon. which jumped out at you? So we're let's focus on most intriguing right now because okay. I think you and I are going to probably have the same answer for most significant, and it's actually a game he does not have on here uh, because I'm guessing he was only looking at September games. Um, I think I got to go Ohio State Oregon for most intriguing. I mean, it, it, first of all, it's just a it's a fun intersectional matchup seeing the, the Buckeyes go on the road to Oregon. Um, Oregon is a team that I think is right on the brink of playoff contention, but we have no idea what their quarterback situation is going to look like. 
Uh, we think we think it's going to be Tyler Shuck. That's my read on it. But we just don't know how he's going to perform, especially in the second game of his career. Uh, whereas we have a pretty good read on Ohio State's quarterback, Justin Fields. Uh, I, I just think it's a uh, it's kind of a statement opportunity for Oregon to show that they can line up with a perennial playoff contending team, a team that it puts tons of players into the NFL. It's in Eugene. So, and, and it's week two. Um, I mean, there were a lot of great choices there, but I think if you're just saying intrigue, I got to go with that one. Uh, I would agree with you for a lot of the reasons you said. Um, you know, I am, I'm very interested to see what happens. Texas at LSU. Sam Ellinger has played a lot of football. Obviously, that was a huge game for LSU. I felt like LSU kind of got Texas's best punch from that game. Uh, I think that's a big one. I'm curious, and it, it's a little bit maybe because Mark had it on, you know, his first list, first game listed in his email was Alabama at USC because I'm fascinated to see how USC comes out this season. They've had what feels like a good offseason with a lot of positive news, which is completely flipping the direction of what it's been like when i say positive news i mean just there's a lot of smaller moves that have been made whether they're assistant moves that i think are very were were shrewd moves by the by clay helton or there were some other things that i think bode well they obviously have a little bit of recruiting momentum which is a big shift from where it was uh back in the winter and if they can be really competitive or if they can somehow win that game against alabama they have a real good chance because the next seven games are very winnable. Not just very winnable. They should be. I think they should be favorites in all of them by a, by a healthy amount. Um, so I'm curious to see in that one. That to me has intrigue because, again, you have a really good quarterback in Keaton Slovis with with some good skill talent, a good D line. Uh, I don't know. Can they can they can they be competitive? Yes. Can they win the game? I mean, that, that's one that I don't think they're going to get embarrassed like they got embarrassed a couple of years ago in what turned out to be uh, Jalen Hurts' first real action for, for the Tide. Um, that game is one that if you had asked me about in January, I would have said, well, you remember what happened when they played this game in 2016. Uh, USC got his ass kicked. And why is that going to be any different this year? I would say, though, that it's shot up my list as time has gone on for a lot of the reasons you said. And I would also just point out that this is going to be such a bizarre offseason by the time it's all said and done. I think there's going to be crazy upsets in week one. Like, it's not going to come, you know, you can you can say this team has X number of returning starters or this team's recruiting rankings or whatnot. Factors that you would never in a million years consider. Basically, who makes it through camp um, or, or beyond camp, who's going to make it through these last eight months where they weren't together on campus and they were learning over Zoom and and all this stuff that you can can't possibly predict? Um, I think could lead to some crazy results early in the season. Maybe it normalizes itself as you go on, but you know how there's usually one or two, like Georgia State, Tennessee last year, right? Make no made no sense then. It made no sense as the season went on. You could have a dozen of those uh, or more in week one. Right, and so much of it, I think, is going to be for a limited continuity and not much of a spring. I, I also, and I hope this doesn't kind of violate what we just said in the intro, but the gambling aspect of what's going to happen in, in college 
not just college football, but in sports in general, I think is going to be a fascinating subplot in terms of, wait, there's a crazy line move here. Oh, somebody knows that, especially with, it's, it seems like there's going to be limited information uh, schools and are going to release about positive tests and whether there are going to be, you know, I, I would imagine there's going to be a lot of games that the, the line will be off the board um, because of ex, extenuating circumstances. I mean, there's and usually so, some games opening week, uh, you made me real think of this, where there have been guys who the school has known for eight months were going to be suspended for the game, but they never announced it. And then, you know, two hours before the game, they're like, oh, they sent out a little press release that these three guys won't be available. It's going to be like that, except they're only going to find out like that morning or the day before whenever they're going to be doing the testing and they're not going to announce it. You're just going to, the game's going to start and like, oh, where's that team's leading running back? He's nowhere to be found. He must have tested positive. So I think that is also going to create a, a odd dynamic. I mean, if you go back to, it was the, it was a game the week before my crew did Oklahoma. It was Oklahoma Baylor and CD Lamb great receiver all-american for oklahoma i think there was even a college game day feature on him and then he did not play in the baylor game and then there was a quite a bit of speculation that week um about what had happened because it wasn't really disclosed why he didn't play uh and then it in our game the week the following week you know we had I'd reported that it was due to uh concussion protocol but i think what you just said, I think, is there's probably going to be a lot of assumptions made by people if it's like, is this a violation of team policy? Because we hear that a lot now is, you know, whether in some cases with, with some schools, violation of team policy could mean uh, positive pot test or something of that nature uh, or who knows what. And so, again, not to go down too far down that road. Um I would ask you, so which did you, you alluded to this, but I don't think you said it. What is your most significant non-conference yeah. game? Well, and now I see why it isn't on here. Mark had the caveat I didn't include Notre Dame ACC games or rivalry games. Uh, Clemson at Notre Dame in early November. Just, uh, first of all, the timing. You know, I just think that a game that late in the season is going to probably be more significant in the long run than a game played September uh, 12th. Um, it will probably, I mean, look, you never know, but I think Notre Dame's going to be pretty good, which means this could be the toughest game of the season for Clemson. And if it's like, uh, if the ACC is as bad as it was last year, I actually think it'll be better. But if it's as bad as it was last year, and it's a situation where Clemson has to go undefeated to make the national title game, like that's probably the game that's going to determine it. So, I mean, certainly you could see getting to selection Sunday and and the result of the Ohio State Oregon game dictates whether one of those teams gets in or not that's that could certainly happen but I think that Clemson Notre Dame could have more of a real-time impact in terms of somebody either securing or getting eliminated from a playoff berth okay so you kind of danced around this a little bit he he included I want to you know kind of maybe touch on some of these other matchups because there were let me see there's six I bolded of his list that Kind of caught my eye um, as intriguing. I am intrigued by Michigan against Washington and Jimmy Lake's first game as the as the Huskies coach. Um, you know, I, I I feel like this one. 
I don't, we don't know what we're going to get. Your both teams have uncertain quarterback situations. Obviously, you don't have either team ranked in your top twenty. You have Michigan twenty-two. Uh, I was surprised. Maybe I forgot this that you had you had Tennessee in your top twenty-five. They play at Oklahoma. That was a wild game when it was in Knoxville. I don't know how many years ago. It was probably four years ago. When Butch Jones was the coach. Yeah, it was just. I think that was Baker Mayfield's. Um, if not debut, like one of his first couple games as the Oklahoma quarterback, it'll be it'll be an, an intriguing one this year because I think Tennessee could have one of the best defenses in the country, and, and one of the best Spencer offensive Rattler. lines in the country too. Yep, Spencer Rattler will be, you know, he'll be his first big game as Oklahoma's quarterback. So um, now it could be that I'm being jumping jumping the gun a little bit on Tennessee as a top twenty five team. Then I'm getting a little too excited about that Gator Bowl comeback against Indiana. Um, Blaine in Virginia, dear Bruce and Stu, it's a contradiction that everyone loves on-campus college football games, yet wants to expand the playoff and devalue the regular season such that any individual game doesn't matter. Programs like Purdue could look forward to possibly spoiling a national championship season of a powerhouse, a cherished lifelong memory for a program that will never make the title game. What will these programs have to look forward to now? They will probably never make the playoff, and even if they upset number one Ohio State, it only affects... Ohio State's jersey color in the playoff. Bruce, you're an eighteen guy. Tell talk him out of that. No, I think there's still some some merit to that. I mean, I don't think you know the, ruining the season. I remember like one of the best examples I thought of that was the David Gordon uh, kick for Boston College against Notre Dame it was probably like 1991 or something like that. But I still think those monumental upsets are going to matter. I mean. Look, there's there's something, you know, people look back, I feel like, in retrospect and maybe go, oh, well, this game cost them the playoff. But it didn't entirely, um, you know, it, I feel like it doesn't entirely hold up. Like, I think you think of it in the moment, fans storm the field. It doesn't necessarily have to do with, okay, did this actually end up costing them or not, right? I mean, just think about some of the big losses that, have happened over I want to say like the last maybe six years right and one of the ones that comes to mind as as a you know sizable not only say a shocker because Michigan State was really good but that Michigan State Ohio State game I mean no I should scratch that because obviously Michigan State was a top 25 team he's talking about programs that are completely off the grid right well a recent example of that and so basically, once the play, four-team playoff came in, I mean those upsets still are still significant, but they don't—they're not quite as. I mean, you remember in the BCS that the day that um, Kansas State was undefeated and got crushed by Baylor, and Oregon was undefeated and, and just crushing people and lost to Stanford like seventeen fourteen, and it was like that's it; those teams aren't making the national championship game now. You know, no one game has that kind of impact now, but they can still be pretty impactful, but. It just kind of depends. I mean, that Ohio State-Purdue game that he's referencing a couple years ago, yeah, that that probably ended up, it did end up keeping Ohio State out of the playoff. You didn't know that that night, but it did. Um, but that, but then you also think the year Clemson won its first national title under Dabo, they lost at home to a mediocre Pitt team. Pitt, in, yeah. I want to say early November, and in, like they were right back in the top four the next week. So you're already kind of seeing that a little bit. I do think in an eight-team playoff, um, all that matters is winning your conference. 
I mean, even if you go nine and three, if you can win your conference, you're in the playoffs. So I do see what he's saying, and I think that um, I know it's something people that really want to see a bigger playoff don't necessarily dwell on. Is that it'll be it'll be very exciting, and it'll give more teams a chance to make the playoff. But for the Purdue's, for the who's to Iowa say State. Purdue couldn't make a playoff? By the way, you're, I I mean I feel like you're completely limiting the opportunity of. That they could, I think it would be a once in fifty years kind of thing. Well, here's here's the question yeah. for you: Is the gap between Purdue with Jeff Brom as a coach that dramatically different than it is with Minnesota right now? Um, you mean is it is are you saying there's why couldn't Purdue be, have a season like Minnesota had last year? They could. Yeah, I mean. I'm thinking, I mean, the only time I think Purdue won the Big Ten in the last 50 years was with Drew Brees, and they went like 8-4. and four. So uh, it's possible. It's not going to happen very often, um, I think. I mean, if you look at it, and I, I, not do, I haven't researched this, but I can think about some of the talent there. I mean, Purdue has, has landed probably as much high-profile talent, I would say, in the last few years as Minnesota did. Right, Rondell Moore, Carl Laftis. Well, are I mean, you predicting Minnesota is going to make the playoff under PJ Fleck? No, but Minnesota at what was was actually in the discussion. I'm not saying obviously they didn't get there, but they were in the discussion. And again, the gap between Minnesota and Purdue, I don't think. And this is no knock on PJ Fleck or no knock on Minnesota. It's we're not talking about the gap between let's say Michigan as a profile or as a brand or certainly Ohio state at, at, but again, you know, I think that you're maybe, and this isn't really probably where Blaine wanted to go and maybe he just kind of brought up Purdue, but I don't, I, I think you still have at least a chance if it, if there is, I think right? you had a better chance of that in the days before conference title games, like my beloved 95 Northwestern team, uh, didn't have to play Ohio State that year with you know an absolutely loaded Ohio State team. Like you could miss, you could miss uh, certain opponents. Now you've got to play in the championship game. You're not going to catch any breaks that way. You may catch breaks to win your division, but you're still going to have to at some point face the the juggernaut in your conference. Um, I think basically it comes down to like. Bowl games have been devalued, but for like Indiana last year, it was still a big deal to go play in the Gator Bowl. That was a that was a successful season for them. Will it still feel that way in an eight team playoff, or will it just be well, we were eliminated from playoff contention in week six, and it just kind of didn't matter after that? Let's say this. So again, I don't want to harp too much on Purdue with this, but I'm guessing when when Bill Snyder was the head coach, got to be the head coach at K State, nobody saw that coming, right? Right. And so if you build a really good program and it continues to develop, you at least have a, a shot to be there. And I think you would have a better shot. You know, no, If you would put that model in place back then, I think K-State would have, had, you know, would have been in a decent position. Again, nobody, nobody was talking about K-State. I mean, K-State was further away from, from competing for championships, certainly, than Purdue is. Yeah, in my in my written mailbag that went up on uh, the day that we're recording this on Wednesday, somebody it kind of blew my mind for him to not, nobody had pointed out that twenty fifty is a, which seems like a you know 
a long, long, long time in the future is as close to today as 1990. And so he was like, what complete, what, what programs you would never in a million years think will, would be a you know top 25 fixture will be that team in 2050, which is a complete guess. Um, and so I looked back to 1990 and in 1990, nobody in a million years would have guessed that there would come a time when Oregon and Wisconsin were regular top 25 teams. Oregon has made national championship games. Wisconsin's played in however many Rose Bowls. So anything is possible in terms of a program that is completely off the radar now, building itself into that. Um, but for most of them, it's still going to be a, you know, like Wake Forest had that one dream season in 2006. Is that going to happen again anytime soon? Hey, look, Kansas under yeah. Mark Mangino was actually very good at, towards the end. So, yep. uh, Also, that was also in my written mailbag today. Clearly, it's on your mind. I read it this morning, Stu. Yeah, Mark Mangino's on the brain. Back to the podcast in a second, but first a word about our sponsor, Hawthorne. Guys, let's be honest. Smelling good is important. I think you would all agree. I think your significant others would agree. And having received my Hawthorne body wash and shampoo and deodorant, I can confirm Hawthorne smells really good. It's a very cool ordering experience. You go on the site and they and you take a quiz about all your various preferences and they customize it from a ton of different combinations and recommend which products would be best for you. I'm very satisfied with the products I received and I can tell you that my wife is very satisfied with the products they received. She actually complimented me on how nice I smell now. Check out Hawthorne at hawthorne.co. That's Hawthorne with an E and .co, not .com. Hawthorne.co. And use our promo code AUDIBLE to get 10% off your first purchase. That's Hawthorne.co. Use our promo code AUDIBLE to get 10% off your first purchase. Hawthorne.co. Uh, all right. This question is from Andrew. Hey, guys. In the seemingly never-ending discussion about coaches on the hot seat, who are some examples of a coach on the hot seat who you feel could have turned things around if only the school had shown a little more patience? For me, it was Rick Neuheisel at my alma mater, Washington. I realized he was on the hot seat for non-football reasons, in parentheses, lying about interviewing for the 49ers job and participating in a March Madness pool. But I don't think his actions warranted a dismissal. A suspension, yes which really set the program back for years. Okay, Stu, I have some some thoughts on this. What comes to mind when you think of guys who pro- might have got the plug pulled on them too soon? Um, one that comes to mind, actually, now that I think about it, they involved the same school. Um, I mean, I think that uh, David Cutcliffe got the got it pulled too soon at Ole Miss. We've seen what a, what a great head coach he is by what he's done at Duke, and I think the ceiling would have been higher at Ole Miss. Um, and you know, you also wonder, given given who Ed Ogeron turned into, I mean, nobody would dispute those were three rough years. But if he comes back the next year with Jevin Snead as his quarterback, is it possible? I'm not saying he be, he wins a national title there, but that he um, that his the whole trajectory of his, of that program and his career go considerably different because you remember Houston Nuts took over and immediately won eight or nine games the next year. Yeah, he went to back-to-back Cotton Bowls. I, so I can speak to that one pretty pretty well. I, I, as you said, he would have had Snead. A lot of those best players that he had were freshmen and sophomores. What's interesting to me is, and I will, in full disclosure, um, 
I've worked on a book with him this off season called Flip the Script, and it really gets into a little of that. Whoa, and, that's the first time we've no, heard the name. That is the first time we've heard Flip the, name. the yeah. Script. So, I like it. So some of the things that I think are in place are, would he have had much more success at Ole Miss? Yes, I'm convinced of it because I think the way they were recruiting and the foundation he was building. Would he have become the same coach he has proven to be now at LSU? It's interesting to look at that because as you know, we get into this a lot in the book, there's a lot of things that I think he did a lot of self reflection looked in the mirror and evaluated a lot of things and i think the struggles that he had in oxford to that degree and maybe because it's you're going through a really devastating situation when you get fired it forces you to be more introspective than maybe a lot of football coaches or a lot of people in general would want to be so it may have prompted more of the changes um i had a couple of other names that came to mind and one of them was Rich Rodriguez at Michigan. Now, we know this was not a great fit out of the gate. We know he did not jump into an ideal situation for him to go in there. Uh, they were woeful the first year. They got a little better, and then they got a little better. He, they went from three wins to five wins to seven wins, and they were really bad on defense. And then, uh, you know what, like after that going forward, Brady Hoke came in. Brady Hoke was a Michigan guy, and they still had Denard Robinson, uh, and they won 11 games Brady Hoke's first year with Rich Rod's players. I think anybody who watched what he did at, at Arizona knows he's a really good football coach. There's a, you know, He's a demanding, super intense guy, but I, I would have been curious to see what would have happened if Rich Rod got a little more time there. I, don't, I think people forget how good of a coach he is um, and then one other name I was going to throw at you. I also, you know, wrote down Mark Helfrich because he had, like like Cutcliffe, he had one really bad year and they pulled the plug. Um, I don't know. Things felt like they were they were backsliding there. But the other name I was going to say is Tony Levine at Houston. They they pulled the plug in a hurry there, and they brought in Tom Herman, and Tom Herman won big with his players, and then Tom Herman left. Um, you know, Tony Levine basically had the same record, I think, the year he got fired that Tom had when he got the Texas job, actually. So, I don't know. What do you think? I think the with the Rich Rod situation, I mean, look, the Michigan thing turned out to be an outlier, right? Like, he, he won big at West Virginia. He took Arizona. He had a 10-win season at Arizona. Uh, shoot, if you watched that Ole Miss LSU game last year, you know about Rich Rod and his offense, but there was so much off the field. So there was so much just noise and baggage. Like, remember, there was that whole, you know, months-long feud about who was going to pay his West Virginia buyout, and then there was an NCA investigation, and it just seemed doomed from the start, you know, regardless of whether his offense, you know, whether they would have had a better defense the next year and all those things. Like, I just think that a big chunk of that fan base had written him off, and that happens, right? We've seen... I mean, I think that's what happened to Willie Taggart. There was just no, uh, he had such a bad initial impression that there was going to be, that there was going to be no, um, you know, no wiggle room there. So um, that you have to kind of factor that in as well. What do you think of the Tony Levine one? Because, you know, obviously 
He is out of coaching now. He has a Chick-fil-A business in the Houston area. But again, now he this is this is why I think the question is fascinating. And, and Rich Rod's different in that Rich Rod was not a first-time head coach. Ed Ogeron, who you mentioned, was a first-time head coach in an SEC program. So I think you are learning on the fly on a in a relatively big stage. Tony Levine was a first-time head coach, followed up Kevin Sumlin. I think Tony Levine really whiffed on his first offensive co- uh, coordinator hire, um, and that they had a rough gate, r- go out of the gate. We've seen that the leadership at Houston is incredibly volatile, <laughs> uh, to put it mildly. Um, you know, the, the, his last season, the team goes eight and five uh, again. Then the next year, Tom Herman comes in and he has a huge season. And then the next year, which would have been Tom's, I guess it's Tom's second year, he goes nine and four and has the same record in the AAC, uh, five and three. What do you think? I think you are much more familiar with the inner workings of the Tony Tony Levine regime than I am. Um, But you don't see a lot of examples where a first-time head coach... um, well, you don't see a lot of examples where the first for, where the first time head coach who who flounders, you know, gets a second chance and redeems himself. Ogeron is obviously the exception, um, but you know, if, if you want to blame Will Muschamp's, you know, at the time if you want to blame Will Muschamp's Florida tenure on him being a first time head coach, well, it's not like things have gone much differently uh, at South Carolina. So, um, you know. I think it depends on how much you learn from the experiences you have. And then, you know, and I've made this point several times, you know, in stories and also on the podcast, I'm sure, is the most, the biggest aspect isn't whether you win the press conference on day one, it is how well you put a staff together. And sometimes, and I think it certainly happened with Will Muschamp at Florida, and it happened with Tony Levine at Houston, um, if you miss on a couple of critical hires, you're digging out of a big hole and you may not be able to get out of it because depending on how uh, volatile the leadership, how much they trust you and whatnot, or how much pressure's on them, it's just, it's hard to undo that. Michael in Atlanta. Enjoy the podcast, guys. Thanks for providing us the great content, even though we may not always agree. Do you think there's a bias towards offensive-minded coaches in college football? Reading Athlon's recent head coaching rankings where they put Dan Mullen ahead of Kirby Smart um, or where you guys constantly put Lincoln Riley ahead of Kirby, though Kirby's defense—is this the same person who's constantly writing in to to get on us about Lincoln Riley ahead of Kirby? Can't remember. Though Kirby's defense has performed better than Riley's offense in a tougher league, and he's beaten him head to head. Mike Leach gets a lot of love as an offensive genius, but defensive-minded head coaches appear to fail to get similar love, especially up-and-coming coaches. I think Michael has a point here to some degree. Um, I still would hold up Lincoln Riley ahead of Kirby at this point. Um, And I think Dan Mullen's a really good coach, but I don't know if I would put him quite ahead of Kirby yet. In Michael's email, he does mention that Kirby Smart has beaten Dan Mullen three years in a row. Um, Look, when I, I went back and looked at my top 25 rankings of coaches this year, there's a couple of guys who are defensive-minded guys who I had high on my ranking. I probably had them higher than most people did, and that's Kyle Whittingham and Gary Patterson. But then I feel like there is there is something to be said for it's. I feel like it's easier for 
the for the people who cover the sport, whether it's the people announcing the games or writing about them, to kind of gravitate towards Lincoln Riley as a play caller or Dan Mullen in this case as a play caller or certainly Mike Leach. I mean, it's it's a little easier, you know, that the cliche is often sells tickets. And I think they create a buzz with that. And it's just easier for people to grasp, grab onto scheme that on the offensive side of the ball. Um, even when it's defensive guys, I don't necessarily think people look at them, define them as defensive guys. Now, Nick Saban, they certainly do. And as I, you know, my examples of Gary Patterson and, and, uh, and, and Kyle Whittingham hold up, but then you start to get into, it's just not a lot of guys right now. Like, I mean, you could put, we both had Ed Ogeron in our top five. I don't know that, you know, because he wasn't, he was a defensive coordinator for one season in the SEC at Ole Miss, but for the most part, people, unless you were a coordinator level, I think they don't see it that way. But you can kind of go through the list here, whether it was James Franklin or Jimbo Fisher. I mean, there's a lot more than, you know, than what, uh, than what Michael talked about. You know, Scott Satterfield fits into that category, former OC. I think there's Matt Campbell, even though he's a defensive player, was, was an offensive coordinator. David Shaw was an offensive guy. Um, you know, Paul Christ. So there's there's just a lot of them. It just kind of piles up. Well, just look at who gets the big head coaching jobs, right? Tom Herman, offensive guy, head coach at Texas. Mike Norvell, exciting offenses at Memphis, gets the Florida State job. Meanwhile, Brent Venables, still still... Still a defensive coordinator. Some of that is Brent Venable's choice, though. Yeah, but I don't. I, have you ever heard of a? I mean, when I, when Kirby we, Kirby Smart did get a huge yeah, job. He did. And you mentioned a minute ago, Will Muschamp got a huge job. I mean, and it has happened. Dave Aranda, by the way, got a you know got a really good job. Got, just well, now. I think that's the difference right there. You know, Dave Aranda. I mean, Link Bob Stoops handed over the keys to one of the most successful programs of all time to a first-time head coach because he's an offensive guru. Dave Aranda has been one of, if not the most respected defense coordinators for years. And when he finally gets the opportunity, it's at Baylor, which is a good program, but not a blue blood. So I. But Lincoln I, Riley I was physically right. there. Lincoln Riley was there. Ryan Day was there. That's part of why they got elevated into those jobs, I think. Yeah, I think it's a combination of there aren't. I mean, Jimmy Lake, Jimmy Lake just got the Washington yeah, job. That's, that's a really good job. I'm not saying it never happens. I'm saying that, you know, flip a coin, it's usually going to go to the. I mean, I just think it's easier to sell to the fans and the boosters. Hey, here comes the guy who, uh, who, who put up 40, 50 points a game at his last job versus here's a guy who's very respected for his defensive game plans. So yeah, I don't yeah. know. I th- I think that's a little of a stretch. I mean, Pat Narduzzi got a good power five job. Jeff Halfley got a pretty good power five job. You're, you're those still guys talking about, you know, mid-level power five jobs. I know, but I mean, we're also, we also talked about Georgia and Florida Georgia, and Washington. Georgia, Kirby Smart getting Georgia. Um, Florida. Is the most prominent well, recent one. But I mean, you got to go back to, you know, Oklahoma hired Bob Stoops as a first-time head coach because he was Steve's, a really good defense coordinator for Steve Spurrier. And... Gosh, I mean, how often has that ever happened since then? It's almost always the offensive guy. It's not true. I mean, Will Muschamp got a big job. Will Muschamp, yes, Will Muschamp, you're right. Will Muschamp got a got a blue blood job. 
known as a deep does it seem like it's all it's almost like an sec thing? you better have a nick saban connection well, you have to get nick saban it. connection but also we're we're mentioning a bunch of sec defensive coordinators um whereas the guys that come out of the pac-12 the big 12 like they're offensive guys well, Jim, like Jimmy Lake got one of the probably the three best yes. jobs in the Pac-12 just now. He did. Now, granted, he was there, but I think there is something to be said for that. Look, uh, Brent Brett Bielema got a really good job at Wisconsin. Now he was there, but that was a strong program when he got it. That was years ago, but so where are we landing on this offensive bias or no? Yes, offensive bias. I just don't think it's quite as egregious. Uh, as you know, as maybe it factors it into is. the rankings. Yeah. yeah, maybe so. Okay, why don't you ask this BYU question? All right, hey Stu and Bruce, is BYU really benefiting from a from being a football independent? I realize that they've gotten their own TV deal with ESPN, but from a scheduling standpoint, it seems like a tough proposition and one that doesn't afford them an opportunity to have significant success. I assume they are hoping slash wanting to be offered a spot in the Pac-12 or Big 12 when the next round of conference realignment and expansion happen. But I feel they've slid into mediocrity and their quote-unquote brand has become almost non-existent on the college football scene. Thanks, Chris. I get asked this question so often. In fact, I feel like I do radio interviews in Salt Lake City every year where they ask this exact same question. Do you do you think they've been better off being an independent or not? And um uh, I personally think it's been uh, the. I personally think they don't. What they don't want to do is they don't want to go slinking back to the Mountain West and admitting defeat. Like certainly they would take an invite to a Power Five conference. They obviously want to want that, but they'd rather be an independent than go back to the Mountain West. I think they should go back to the Mountain West. I mean, you know, I'm not. I don't have like a personal pride or investment in it. Now they would tell you that the deal they're getting with ESPN is better than what they would get as a member of the Mountain West, and that's probably true. Um, and that, you know, for a school that has, frankly, an international fan base, um, that that's more important. The exposure is more important. But um, at the end of the day, you know, Notre Dame can be an independent and remain in everybody's, you know, on everybody's radar all year unless they're having a really bad year. Um, and then they have the ACC's, bowl partner so even if they don't get into one of the new year six they they, they know they're going to get into the you know whatever it's called now well what, which one what's, what's the second one in orlando is that Hopefully. the mayonnaise is that the mayonnaise bowl no, no, no. <laughs> the one that used to be the champ sports bowl gosh they just i think i think they are the camping world bowl and now believe it or not they are the new cheese it bowl i'm gonna have to refresh my you know do a refresher on bowl sponsors for this year um byu basically where you see BYU the most is like the first three or four weeks, right? They played Tennessee last year. They played USC. They played Washington. You know, those were games that were on ESPN. And, and, and But then they just, you know, unless they're going to have an undefeated season, they're completely out of sight, out of mind those last two months. And then they don't actually have, like, don't you think it would be better if they were in the mix for that group of five New Year's Six birth that, you know, Memphis got last year, that UCF got? They don't have that. They have to finish ranked highly enough to be picked as an at-large team and that's obviously very hard to do yeah i mean in a lot of ways the discussion became about like we're kind of like notre dame and my one counter to that and this is not meant to be disrespectful to the byu fan base at all but like 
I agree with you when you say they have an international fan base and, and following, and they do have really rich football history. The the thing that one of the things that elevates Notre Dame as a TV ratings buy is it's not just their fans. People tune in a lot of them to watch them, hoping that they lose. Right. I don't think you get many people who who seen BYU through that prism. You may get some Utah fans who see them through that prism, but I just don't think you're going to get anybody in the SEC or hardly anybody in the Big Ten footprint to tune in and watch a BYU-Washington game and they are rooting, even if they're not Washington fans, because they, you know, that's, that is the, that is the spirit, I think, some of the Notre Dame, uh, Notre Dame spirit that, uh, like, comes with, with seeing them as a, why their TV ratings often are really good is just because I'm sure there are a lot of people who watched it didn't mind even weren't Michigan fans, but didn't mind seeing Michigan rip them up. I know there were a lot of people who probably rooted for Miami of even if they didn't like Miami when they were playing Notre Dame back then because they didn't like Lou Holtz or they didn't like Notre Dame. So I mean, Notre Dame is one of those teams that you know your grandfather who doesn't who doesn't follow college football that closely anymore. But if they see Notre Dame, they're flipping the dial. Notre Dame's on. They're going to stop and watch their game, right? Just like. Ohio State or, or somebody like that. Um, that's not the case with BYU. I feel bad for BYU because they they do deserve better than what they have. I mean, they are, in terms of having a 60,000-seat stadium and they won a national title and they Heisman winner, like they're more a Power 5 program in many respects than a lot of the current Power 5 programs. They just don't have a home. So they're kind of in this weird uh, no-man's land right now. This is from Gordon in Athens. As sports writers who are trying to take us take in as much relevant information as you can, how do you guys watch a football game? Specifically, when the ball is snapped, do you usually focus on specific players, positions, or just follow the ball? I'm going to be interested to, on your part of this because you have a different vantage point than, than any of us. But um, it, So if I'm watching on TV, it's it, I'm following the ball. It's, it's you know, unless you're watching like the all 22 film after the fact, it's hard to, to, to do otherwise. That's just how the whole broadcast is um, produced is around the ball. If I'm in the stadium up in the press box, that's probably still the case the overwhelming majority of the time. But what you're able to do more in the in the press box or in the stands is, is watch the defense. You know, if you're watching an Alabama LSU game that's full of future NFL defensive players, I like to maybe focus on Derek Stingley for a couple plays and watch him play or, or you name it, right? Um, Quinn and Williams. And it's harder to do that on TV. Yeah. I'm, I got to pick my spots on, on this just from being on the sideline. My vantage point is going to vary. Um, but I'm looking to see whatever our storylines we're trying to follow because quite honestly, Joe Davis, our play by play guy, he's the one who's on top of the ball. I hear Joe, you know, I'm listening to the broadcast and I'm listening to our our producer at the same time in my ear. So I'm really trying to see either specific matchups that maybe I can go into or things like that. Um, I want to I'm very mindful before the snap of personnel and I'm very mindful of of uh, formations. And then from there, I try to pick my spots on where I'm going to where I'm going to, you know, train my eyes and it, it varies, but you know, because you're so, the the job is so incumbent on really fleshing out the storylines. It's almost like being where the, being where the viewer isn't, you got to pick the other spots to complement the broadcast. 
Um, this next one is from Colin in England. I'm not going to try to pronounce the town. Listening to your comments about LSU next year, feel, it seems like they could go anywhere from 12-1 and one to 7-5. and five. What has been the worst defending national champions you have seen? That's easy. The Auburn the year after Cam Newton. I don't think, um, yeah, I would agree with Cam Newton. I, by the way, I don't see them as 7-5. and five. I think the floor for LSU is probably 9-3. and three. Uh, From talking to their coaches this week, they feel like they're really, really going to be good on defense. They obviously have um, some stud receivers. The question is going to be, how good is the quarterback going to be? You know, they have really good receivers. I, th- I think they'll be fine on the offensive line. They have to replace four starters, three starters, depending on how you categorize Ed Ingram. But I think they'll be very good because they're going to be really good on defense. Now, is Miles Brennan going to have anywhere near the numbers Joe Burrow had last year? I don't think so. Will he have – I think our, our colleague who covers LSU, Brody Miller, had said if it was – 30 touchdown passes, which would be a huge year normally by an LSU quarterback, but it would be about half the numbers Joe Burrow put up last year. So I think he will, I think he will do at least that, but, um, you know, somewhere to me, it's, I think they're a nine or 10 win team. I would agree with you on Auburn just because that was Cam Newton showing when they left. Just felt like I don't say the bottom dropped out, but it just was like a completely different team. That Texas game will be interesting because. I mean, it was a very competitive down-to-the-wire game last year, and, and now you've got um, Sam Ellinger back for Texas, but LSU breaking in the new quarterback. So um, I think it's one of those games that LSU will be favored, but it's not as obvious. I mean, it could go. I wouldn't be surprised with the result either way. Uh, in terms of that, you know, that Auburn team, so that 2010 Auburn team, we've talked about this many times. I'm not sure there's ever been a national champion, or at least in the modern era, that's produced fewer NFL players than that team did. It was the Cam Newton, Nick Fairley show. And so the next year, I mean, I remember I actually went to their spring game the next year, and I didn't recognize almost any of the players. Like, it was like they had, like, seven starters back or something like that. And it wasn't a great talent base to begin with. That's not LSU. Um, Yes, they lost. You you name the star player from last year's team. They lost almost all of them. Stingley was a freshman. Uh, but there's still a lot of talent. No, that's not true. I mean, they still, their Jamar best Chase, receiver yes. was the, yeah, the best receiver in the country is still there. They had eight or nine guys turn pro early, and I believe all but one got drafted. One more? We have time for one more? I think we do. Uh, this one's from Blaze. Hi, Bruce and Stewart. Do OCs and DCs have buyout clauses in their contracts? If so, what dollar amount are we talking about? If not, how long before it happens and becomes a regular thing? Uh, they do. Now, one thing you got to keep in mind is a lot of assistant coaches – don't have multi-year contracts, so I think that makes it a little more um, a little more problematic to to sort through this. It, it certainly varies, uh, but there are things that are in place where you know how do you get out from under a deal if things go bad? Because remember, and this is something I would say use the example of USC. So, and we had talked about this on this podcast back in the winter when we were reporting that USC was not likely to fire Clay Helton. And part of that was because how much money it would cost to, and USC had multi-year contracts to get out from under all those deals and then bring in a new staff. And you're talking about 45 to $50 million. Uh, so that's, 
look at it in the context of this. And by the way, I think this is another thing that might have come up in your mailbag that I read this morning as it relates to coaching changes. Because schools will probably not have a lot of money to, to play with, that they may be hamstrung to make some changes if they feel like, hey, we want to make a move on this. Can we raise the money for a buyout to get rid of this coach? Now, if you add in assistant coaches who are due certain deals, and they vary when, when also when the deals come up. Somebody may only be there till like signing day or whatnot, so it's easier to get out from under those. But that just depends on how much how much fluid cash that they feel like they have to make some of these changes. All right, you know this this is the most fun I've had doing the audible in a while. It, for forty five minutes, I was able to at least. I mean, we did bring up the. Don't bring up, don't bring up that we brought it up. Though. <laughs> We, we, it was unavoidable in that non-conference games question, but for the most part, we we put real-world concerns aside for 45 minutes and just talked ball. And uh, I think we should try to do that more often. Obviously, sometimes we got to cover the news, though, but uh, this was fun, Bruce. Let's do it again. All right, and again, for all your questions, please send them to theaudiblepod at gmail.com, and we will see you next time. If you enjoy the audible please subscribe on apple podcasts google play spotify wherever you get your podcasts leave us a review and a rating if you could too it helps us get the word out our producer is john hayes our theme song is dangerous by kevin and the octaves you can download their music on spotify or apple music follow me on twitter at sl mandel follow bruce at bruce feldman cfb And if you're not yet a subscriber to The Athletic, what are you waiting for? You can get 40% off an annual subscription by using this link, theathletic.com slash theaudible. That's 40% off your subscription to The Athletic. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel.
Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. 